Hello and welcome to Under the Skin with me, your host and friend, Russell Brand, the person. Uh, we're talking to Tim Paul this week. You know who Tim Paul is. He's a journalist, activist, and one of the biggest political YouTubers right now. He's got four YouTube channels and a subscription model site called TimCast.com. You should subscribe to that. His content's great. He became known for live streaming uh, during the 2011 Occupy Wall Street protests. Jen, what have you been doing? I'm back at work. After a week in Switzerland? And Ireland. And Ireland. You did a lot of travel. Yeah. How was it? Good. I haven't been home yet. <laughs> How do you feel? A bit like an, a wandering vagabond? Yeah, a little bit. Do you like that? Uh, sometimes. I'm really looking forward to not moving. You sometimes crave the calm of just domestic peace. Yeah, just lying there. What is, where do you just lie? On my bed. And then maybe in the sofa. <laughs> <laughs> uh, said, you just move from sofa to bed that's it that's your domestic life <laughs> are you on drugs no what type of drugs because i'm unknown but what ones are you gonna guess all drugs antidepressants you no on, what drugs are you on if i was on antidepressants then you wouldn't be wondering why i come across depressed <laughs> what drugs are you on now then none. De depressants no <laughs> <laughs> no none been on any trip trap dates um no but i bumped into a, a fan in Dublin while I was sitting on my own. Go on, what, what happened? I was sitting there having some wine and pasta. Yeah. On the outside because Dublin's trying to be fancy. Yeah. And then someone came up and went, Jenny. <laughs> and I went, oh. And it was that guy who submitted a question for Ask Me Anything. That Irish guy who talked about how emotions are described differently in different languages. Harry. Ooh. Remember he said. He's Irish, is he? Yeah. And how did the chat go? Yeah, it was okay. I wasn't really sure. It was a bit weird to be someone walking up to me initially. Did you sense any chemistry, Jen? Did you fancy a trip trap date no, with Harry? No, he was there with his friend, girlfriend. Ah. Well, but it wasn't so long ago, Jen, that you were considering becoming the third wheel in a three... I'm yeah, but still considering. No. You're still considering it? <laughs> yeah. Well, well you know, if you've nothing, surely a third wheel is something. You're not nothing, Jen. You're a you're a unicycle. Oh, <laughs> that's not nice, is it? Well, why don't you go on those dating sites? I've tried. It doesn't work for me. I've tried them for years. I've been on them for on and off for ten You've years. You've not been on any proper dates. Look, I think you. Need I went me. on a proper date. When? Remember to Norwich the trip oh, trap around. That's not proper. You need me to help. Oh. You do. I can tell. What will help is you look. Get on one of those good ones, not the ones I'll that. Are Focused solely on sex. Go on one of the bit what, more... Hinge. Is hinge I'm not sex? paying for it. Why won't you... I'm not paying for it. You're considering <laughs> becoming gonna, the third wheel in a marriage. That's kind of like a version of prostitution. Everything's a version of prostitution. Uh, yeah, I don't want to pay in. for someone to maybe match at me and then not talk to no, me. No, you're not paying for that. You're paying... Look, for access we... to people. Jenny. <laughs> this is luminary. This is a subscription <laughs> model podcast. Yeah, they, they don't have, get ghosted by the podcast. <laughs> no, we're very present. We're very present for, the, for yeah. the listeners. What I'm saying is you pay for one of the high quality ones so you're with people that are serious, not hook-up merchants. And I haven't that's... hooked up with anyone. Why don't you be a third wheel I haven't hooked up with anyone. You can watch me and the wife doing some wee-wees. Gross, who are oh. you hooking up with? <laughs> this is your world. This These are coming world. from I'm your family experiences. Man. I'm a family man with cats. Yeah, but um, you didn't have to go on a dating app. That's right. Of course not. I was pre-dating app anyway, wasn't I? I was famous. Yeah. Which is the same thing. That was thing. kind of like me being famous. 
It was a bit like it, Jen. But let's try and get a bit more like it, but not even more like yeah, it. But let's... now I'm friends with them and then and his and the girl. That's great. But what I'm look, Jen. Let's get you a proper partner. <laughs> I've told you who I want, but you refuse to give to we're me. Not, we're not farming out the famous. That's not what this show is. Farming out the famous. <laughs> I like that as my dating show. No, no, Jen. We're farming out the non-famous. <laughs> no. Join up to matchmaker or what? Or sex pig or, or no? Because you just—they're just static images. You know, I don't like a static image. What don't you like? A static image. What do you mean you don't like static images? You can't. I do nothing. It doesn't appeal to me. I've never known anyone move less than you. You are a static image. <laughs> you only—you you like a sloth. But Gareth says I move my hands too much. You only use about a calorie a day. It's a miracle you're so slender. I am quite thin. Today you look like a garage attendant. <laughs> you said that before. You look like a garage attendant. Talking. You look like a ga like you provide gas. <laughs> that was banter decanter. Oh. Go on. I've got the wrong turns up. Go on, just play whatever. <laughs> go, go on, play another. You won't one. hear it. I will. I'll put the cans on. Go on, play one. Hold on. Oh, Jen. Banter decanter. Can you hear? Yeah, I heard that. All right, very good. Good, good use of Sorry. a jingle. All right, let's do time now for listener shout-outs before we get over to Tim Paul, brilliant guest, a great community. Listen to shout-outs. <laughs> Christ, marvellous. Absolute joke. Total farce. Victoria <laughs> says, I wish I'd been here earlier. I listened to the first episode today. How relevant it was. Thank you. Go back, listen to all of them. Do you remember we who it was? Uh, no. Who was it? Oh, was it that guy, John Hicks? No, the first episode of Under the Skin. Adam Curtis? No. Prof Professor Brad Paul, Evans. Paul Gilroy. Oh, he was good. Yeah. Yeah. They were much more <laughs> academics then. Yeah, I like that. What did we, we get pulled all over the show on this, don't we? Sometimes yeah. it's spiritual people. Sometimes it's more sort of what might be described as pundits to the right YouTubers. Yeah. I, I, I'd like to get... Let's get some... I like it when we have a spiritual woman on, don't no. you, Jen? Why? Because <laughs> everyone technically is a spiritual woman. What? <laughs> Me? You could be when you're talking about your journey. <laughs> I'm not talking about always. my journey. You're always talking about your journey. I'm never talking about my journey. <laughs> yeah, but you're a, a man, so it comes across different. Do an impression of me talking about my journey. Oh, back when I liked drugs. I thought it would solve everything, <laughs> but it didn't. Is that the journey? Now I pray all day. Right, okay. <laughs> Let me do your journey. Oh, no! Oh, I've trip-trapped around knowledge. Why isn't that one of them? I won't sign up to a dating app. I won't do it. It's prostitution. That's my journey. <laughs> Nothing's happened on it. That's the problem <laughs> with your journey. It's uneventful, Jen. Everyone says it's eventful. Who? Just people in general. What, say their own journey's eventful? No, mine yours? is. <laughs> They're out of their minds. Sign up to a proper... Look, it's no shame in but signing but up. But I can't deal with this message and then I think... And then I forget they exist. Look, I'll help you. <laughs> what, are you going to be me on a dating app? I'm not going to be you. I'm going to improve you. Now, we'll sign up to a normal one, a dating app, that's not for sleazy hookups, right? And then we'll, like, you know, let's get you with a nice 60-year-old man from Worcester. A lovely old pudgy old thing. No, oh, no, they have to be slender. All right, let's get you with a nice slender 30-year-old woman. I did see woman. a tall slender man in Dublin who tall was slender. probably older. And Why didn't you talk to the poor slender fella? He was living his life. Get in there. <laughs> he was locking the door. Then he went off and then he came back. See, now if I've been there, Jen, I've I've coached a lot of people 
uh, a mate of mine, he fancied this bloke, and I went, I, sh I did it for him. I did the chat up and then just passed the ball over at the last minute. I was like, Eric Cantona. I did all of the work, and then I went, there you go, mate. Are yeah, they still together? Well, no, it wasn't that sort of thing. I think they were together for a bit, or maybe they, they had sex. Anyway, they, <laughs> I remember my mate saying to me, that was good what you did there. Is it because you do that thing like we're only alive for a finite time? All that, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then if you don't take part, what is it? Like, yeah, the yeah, point, yeah. have sex, yeah. and there's my mate. Yeah. There's a red chair. What's the red chair? <laughs> you just say something that's factual followed by something that's meaningless. Jen, you're misusing the techniques. <laughs> anyway, I was using it for good. Okay, so look. Here's Tom Ahern, bit more of a compliment. Just wanted to reach out and give my appreciation for you and that ridiculous Irish person. She, she just put, he booked Jenny, but the banter at the beginning of every show gets me pumped up for the car ride. I make, <laughs> don't get pumped for a car ride, Tom. Relax into the seat. At the beginning of every show, blah, 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 have a coffee. Sorry. <laughs> I make it a bit of a habit. <laughs> uh, when I have a long journey through the country in Victoria, Australia, where I live, your humour provides a lovely warmth interwoven between the contentious topics you discuss with your guests on the show. Thanks. A lot of people like the banter decanter. Yeah, some do. <laughs> Richard Johns, your conversation with Ian McGilchrist was awesome. I thought so too, Richard. You will certainly have to let us know when you speak again. Yeah, I'm going to get him on again. <laughs> And I want Eckhart on again, don't you? Do you? Why wouldn't I? You didn't Why speak. Why are you saying do you like that? Because you didn't speak for it. So? I don't mind not speaking. It's a relief. Okay. What are you going to ask him? All right, mate. <laughs> just, then, just take it from there. With subject matter close to me are. Also, I get quite a bit of synchronicity when listening to your podcast. P.S. I get stabbed with pins on a regular basis, or at least the physical experience of it. That's interesting, mate. Keep up the good work, Russell, Jenny, and the rest of the team. Oh, that's very encouraging and inclusive, wasn't it? Hey, have you listened to Above the Noise yet? It's available to you on Luminary. It's a guided weekly meditation. What are we going to do this week, Jen, on Above the uh, Noise? Being okay. <laughs> You're not going to like this. Go on. <laughs> Why am I not going to like it? Why have you selected someone I'm not going to like? Being okay. Learning to be alone. <laughs> oh, my God. Learning to be alone. That's a, I, I did some research ask... I did, and apparently that's one of the issues people have when they're meditating. They don't like sitting down there on their own. Why don't you have a meditation called <laughs> learning to pay for an app so you don't only get involved in sleazy freeways and try and bother a slender man on his doorstep be willing to cough up for Bumble? No, Bumble... I don't know what they are. I'm, I'm in the I'm middle of nowhere. I'm a married man. Yeah. So I what mean, one's a good someone... one? Annabelle. Annabelle? Bumble? What's your relationship with Bumble? She used Bumble. Bumble? Is Bumble a good one for a proper... Well, the girl has to start the conversation. Yeah, she... Oh, that's good. She's going to get pestered by a pest. Yeah. I would go for Bumble. <laughs> but what if you were all girls? Then either of you can start. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> if you're all girls. If you're all girls, anyone can start. Or presumably all boys. Yeah. Bumble. No, boys have their own one. Oh. There's a lot of boy apps. Oh. Hornet. That's the way to do it, isn't it? <laughs> Be a gay man. Yeah. The gloves are off. <laughs> All right, well, anyway, so let's try and get you settled down. I mean, maybe you don't want to be settled down. Maybe you want to be a wandering shaman. Like so you think me. I'm a shaman? You could be, Jen. Something's wrong with you. <laughs> right, okay, so have a listen to Above the Noise on this platform. Also, remember to come and see my tour, particularly in Coventry. I'm really trying to shift those tickets in Co Because Coventry, I guess what it is, is they furloughed everyone and now I've got to shift the old tickety-doo-dah. Everyone so. in Co Coventry got furloughed. I don't know. Go to Warwick, uh, Warwick University. I'm on campus there. Get your tickets there. 
and come see old Russ. He'll be grateful for, to see you. Ma- am I talking about myself in the third person again? <laughs> mailing list. Sign up to my mailing list. I've already told you to do that. And check out my YouTube videos. There'll be a good one from this uh, episode with Tim Poole. And there's some good ones around, you know, COVID legislation and regulation, Afghanistan, all that kind of stuff. You what, Got anything else to add, Jengo? <clears throat> um, no. The, the, When's this going out? Saturday. Come and see me in the field tomorrow night. Oh, yeah. you can see me in the field tomorrow night. I'm bit, like, I've done a just gig in the field last night. I tell you what, the weather's turning. It's raining a lot, Jen. It's not going to be wait raining, is it? In when I'm in the field. I told you, did I? Did you tell me it was going to rain? I don't know. I just, yeah. You said you're just going to put a blanket on. I prefer it not to rain. Yeah, if that's would, okay. It might, I think it might. Well, I prefer it wouldn't. Okay. I'll take bear. It'll be me, bear, meditation, talk you through spiritual techniques. I'll really take you on my journey. So, uh, should we listen to Tim Paul yes, now? Yes, please. Trying to achieve equality with the annihilation of category is not a successful route. Yes, that's, that's, that's exactly right. We're in this era where it turns out we were never the boss. It doesn't look like an ideology. What's beneath the surface of people we admire, of the ideas that define our time, the history we are told? And welcome to Russell Brand. Under the Skin. Tim Paul, thank you for coming on Under the Skin. Thanks for having me. I guess what people will be interested in hearing, and forget them for a moment, what I'm interested in hearing is how you've navigated your your journey, as it's described at least, from the outside, from what was perhaps regarded as a, a conventional liberal leftist position to wherever it is you are now. And do you think that part of this migratory experience process that you've undergone is not about you and changing your own changing political views but something more complex around the um kind of the the sort of erosion of those taxonomies is there something strange happening in the political landscape something like something that's to do with rootlessness something that's to do with performance something that's to do with a loss of real connection i think it's tribalism Uh, I think a lot of my political opinions have stayed relatively the same, although on the Second Amendment and gun rights, I've become much more proponent of the right to keep and bear arms. Uh, A lot of my positions, pro-choice, pro-universal health care, I will say this, I'm pro-A Green New Deal. And then I see the Green New Deal, you know, from Ocasio-Cortez, and it's not what I expected it to be. So in terms of where I fall ideologically, it's a rather left libertarian position. The issue is, I suppose... When you look at the American political landscape and in many Western countries of similarities, you predominantly have kind of a right libertarian, a somewhat right authoritarian and a left authoritarian. There's very, very few true left libertarians. And so I think that's confusing to a lot of people, especially people who will find themselves more right leaning, more in favor of free market capitalism and uh, like maybe like right libertarianism or anarcho capitalism. They don't quite understand how you can be a libertarian, but also be somewhat left leaning. And there's a lot of people online who like to claim they're left leaning, but for some reason they defend violence against others. They defend state mandates. I think a really good example of this would be we saw anti-fascists attacking people who opposed state mandates, which is, I mean, strange for someone who claims to be on the anarchist or libertarian side. Not to say that uh, the, the mandates are right or wrong. I mean, I personally disagree with them, but I'm saying just in this capacity, to see the people who claim to be on the side of the individual freedoms and liberty fighting people in defense of a state mandate, it seems to be antithetical to what their position is supposed to be. So for me, 
I'm always just like, okay, how do we protect the individual and maximize civil rights and uh, equality of opportunity for the, you know, for, for people? Make sure that you have a chance to, to flourish, uh, pursue happiness, live your life. And in that, I do think there's got to be some collective cooperation. However, you can't force people at gunpoint to do it. That would be authoritarian. So it becomes inherently challenging. And then, you know, I think I, I, it's hard to describe, you know, how I end up uh, with kind of the, 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 the political biases I suppose I have. You know, I, I quite frequently rag on Democrats. I rag on Republicans, but not as much. And I think it has a lot to do with the cultural control. And, uh, you know, when I, look, when I look at the Democratic Party, they, they win. They win. Um, and I look at Republicans. They don't do anything. You know, the, the establishment, uh, Republicans, weak, uh, doing a whole lot of nothing. So I don't know how to want to rant too much, but I think ultimately I'm trying to find a way. I I think when it comes to everything I see politically, it's always an issue of, is there some kind of authoritarian system, you know, suppressing and oppressing someone's rights? And I think very often we see with the, what is typically referred to as like the mainstream or establishment left, they're relatively pro-authoritarian. And then when you look at I don't, I don't necessarily, the establishment right, I guess we would call the Republican Party, same exact thing as far as I'm concerned. But then you have the populists, you know, and, and there tends to be some, some agreement, I guess, opposing uh, authoritarian dogma, cancel culture, supporting free speech. And these are things I'm for. So I kind of find myself in this area, mm. even if I don't agree on political issues with them, you know. I've got a bunch of things to say, Tim. Like one is that there was there was this critique that I heard of like um sort of seventies like a uh, sexually overt punk art that was saying like that it was assumed then because of the kind of political culture and the way that the 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 art at that time lined up that there was something essentially leftist about these particular types of artwork but now that the culture has shifted and that the left has become more authoritarian and to some degree puritanical the the, the person who was offering this criticism said there's ne- not necessarily any integ- integral connection between these ideas at all adam curtis the english filmmaker who's been I, I have a lot of conversations with him and i just adore him i think he's so brilliant he and i have talked a lot about the left and of course you know, even in the sort of last half century, you can chart how it is evident is that traditional is that, is that your end, that Tim? Like, it sounds like some, some robot overlord yeah. has been evoked. Alexa, Alexa, stop! It was uh, you allow you allow Alexa in your house? Yes, absolutely. Was it, was that, it me that, was, that stirred her? That was no. It was my reminder to do your show because we ended up going a little early, and so I forgot I had it set for for now. But yeah, I, I do Russell Brand's show. Do Stop. it. <laughs> <laughs> That's what it was saying. That's what it was saying. That's amazing. I'm, I'm doing it, Alexa. You've got, <laughs> Sorry you've got about that. Your, you're exercising unnecessary authority, like much of the left. Um, <laughs> so, like, um, so what? Um, what? You know, you can chart how the traditional constituency of the left has been abandoned. I'm speaking like about UK politics, but I feel like there are clear comparisons, like this. Like, you know, to for 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 Clinton, we have Tony Blair, sort of a popular, centrist, business-oriented affable, charming leader that didn't really offer much in the way of change. And and I feel that what's been happening 
culturally ever since then is that the, 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 the populist voices of the right have gained a lot more traction with working people, regardless, broadly speaking, regardless of, of race and religious identity. Um, but in particular, in my country, you might say, like white working class people, or again, like in terms of race, it's sort of irrelevant. Maybe there's some division around Islam. I'm sure there's thousands and thousands of divisions if we look for them. But the idea now that the Labour Party, you know, our version of the Democrats, has any sort of moral, emotional, spiritual connection with working people is risible. It has become a kind of a cultural, metropolitan ideologically led in some areas that I, towards which I'm personally sort of sympathetic but I feel that the problem that I believe is that these totemic issues have become not are not solely symbolic but are actually a distraction from the fundamental purpose of a a leftist political organization of supporting the rights of ordinary people i think they've abandoned that idea i think they've abandoned that idea and i think ordinary working people know it they're not stupid they recognize it they see what the relationships are like between the media and these parties and it, where are these people going to go who's going to make a home for them who's going to speak for them i honestly have no idea you know uh we had dave smith uh, the comedian who may be running for the libertarian party in the u.s and he's a he's a, a bit he's got conservative values. A lot of the people that we have on uh, on on our show will have to some degree conservative values or be politically moderate. And we agree on the freedom issue. We agree on the individual liberties, the civil rights. We we agree on the problems we see with the, the critical race praxis in schools. And so for me, I'm kind of like, hey, you know, I, I'd love to negotiate with someone on my view of fixing the healthcare system, meaning, you know, I think we should have in the United States something similar to what most countries have, which is a universal basic level of coverage supplemented by private insurance. And there's no conversation for that. Either you are in the dogmatic corner of the authoritarian left, or if you believe in freedom, then you're going to be with people who say, no, nah, it's got to be private. And so for me, it comes down to what do I think is more important? Well, the way I usually describe it is, at the very least, within a libertarian system that is based on more uh, free market enterprise, I can still create my co-op and my system with my friends who believe in this. And at the very least, we're you know protecting individual uh, individual rights. I, I wish you know, like I, I remember, I did a commentary on the Green New Deal before it was announced, when everyone was talking about this idea of investing into green energy and infrastructure. I was all for it. I said, this is fantastic. Uh, this is this could be a great thing where we, we create, you know, jobs, where we uh, tell, you know, our society, hey, we're going to do something good that will make us energy independent. I think conservatives can get behind that. And then when it came out, it had a lot to do with critical race theory, critical race applied principles, free free hospital, free, free university. And I think that's the kind of thing where it's kind of a bait and switch. So on the policy issues, I just feel like they're not talking to me. And so I just default to, okay, freedom and liberty, right? That's, that's the, the, the best I can do for now. Do you accept then that in terms of any kind of political fulfillment, and by that I mean the ability to live in a community that's representative of your values and to express yourself as an individual as you want to, that you would have to, to some degree, 
separate yourself and your community from these centralized structures and if as you seem to be suggesting because you talked about sort of a co-op you sort of at least use that phrase and and, and and does that indicate that perhaps the future for politics is beyond these centralization models? And, and, and are you sympathetic towards people that say, look, what difference does it make this theatre of, you know, of um, this bipartisan theatre? Shouldn't we evolve beyond these models that were kind of created hundreds of years ago when representative democracy was more relevant? I, I, I'm worried that we're drifting into hyperpartisanship. You know, I, I think decentralization is always the way to go. There's got to be some central kind of agreement, maybe overarching um, uh, constitution, perhaps that's a way to put it, where we're like, okay, so these are these are the rules we're going to use to engage with each other, but we disagree. So I think that's why the, the U.S. is actually uh, great. The states, the cities, the localities, they each have their own implementation, their own version, but it's, it's, it's hyper-centralizing. And the problem is uh, you can look at it with media. The more we, we lose local media in the United States because they can't sustain themselves in this new attention economy, we see the rise of uh, the New York Times building a massive subscription platform. We see the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal. And then what happens is for the average American, they're hearing about national issues and less local issues. Now, for one, this can breed corruption at a local level, which the local level is where it's at. The federal level is, is often, in my opinion, a distraction for, for a lot of reasons. But then you end up with corruption at the local level you end up with people disassociated from their own communities, and then you end up with hyperpolarization and centralization. So the fear I have with this is, you know, you, you, you take a look at when Joe, Joe Biden came out a few months ago and said that we may need to have more, more lockdowns, more restrictions. This was at a time when Texas and Florida had been releasing their lockdowns. They've been uh, easing the restrictions and mask mandates and all that stuff. And so when Joe Biden comes out and he speaks, saying those things, he's clearly not talking to red states. And so now you, you, you already have a situation where over the past year, many, I think it's like half of Republicans don't view Joe Biden as legitimate. And like a third think that he didn't even win the election. And so these people are already feeling like they're not a part of the system. When the president comes out and speaks in a way that very much so speaks to only one side of the country, the centralization is giving way to a, a splitting down the middle of some sort. I don't know ultimately what it would look like, but that's what happens when you go from decentralized communities with a weak central structure where they can communicate to centralizing everything and then factionalizing. I think the whole system is going to implode on itself. And I think it has a lot to do with the internet. I think it has a lot to do with uh, social media and the attention economy. I don't know what the solutions are, to be honest. You know, people have a right to free speech. You used to like say more. Um, thank you, Laura. You used to say more. Um frequently at least as, as, as far as I'm aware that you felt that I think I guess in the final days of Trump that America was on the brink of some kind of civil war and um, I still do do you yeah there's a uh, uh, but there, there's been polling data that I think may uh, uh, you know evolve that opinion notably there was a YouGov data that show I think it was YouGov that uh, there's five regions in the United States. There's the Northeastern, there's the Southern, there's the Heartland, there's the, the West and the Mountain regions. And in each region, there was a large plurality of people who wanted to secede from the Union and form their own regional governments, essentially. If you, if you uh, normalize for population in each, by each state, I did the math, you end up with 37.2% of the U.S. population wanting the country to break apart. 
that's 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 massive uh, because opposition to a, a, a balkanization of the United States is comparable. It's in the it's in the third range. So you have about a third of people who are like, I don't care. You have about a, a little bit over a third saying, shut her down. And you have about a third saying, no, no, keep it as it is. And so when it comes to the yes or no vote, the people who abstain, abstain, and then you'll get what, 50-50? So I, I don't exactly know what it would look like, though. I think people have this uh, um, misconception about what civil war really means. Uh, and they also don't take into account that we're in what's referred to as fourth and fifth generational era of warfare. Uh, we don't necessarily use kinetic force to win wars. We use uh, psychological operations, propaganda, manipulation. And so uh, depending on how you want to define it, look, we had a guy get shot in the chest by an anti-fascist after a Trump rally in Portland. We just had a shootout in Portland just a couple of days ago. It may, the, the kinetic aspect of any kind of civil conflict may keep itself constrained to these left and right skirmishes in various cities. Then it simmered down a little bit. We're in kind of a lull year because politics, uh, you know, we, we just got off a presidential election. But I mean, you look now with the uh, cyber symposium and uh, I see a cat and uh, and uh, we, we have the audits in Arizona. You know, I, I just talked with Steve Bannon the other day and he's talking about audits in, in, in Georgia and Wisconsin and Michigan and all these states. This is persistent. These people aren't backing down. They don't view Biden as the real president. And so if, if you have that rising sentiment, I'm not saying that we're going to see, uh, you know, one, one thing Bill Maher said was that there couldn't be a civil war because the Mason-Dixon line would go through grandma's kitchen, a reference to the line that divided the North, North and the South. But I think that's, uh, Americans have this, this issue where we view, we view conflict or, or uh, circumstances or uh, concepts through an American lens. They don't seem to understand that the world exists and Spanish Civil War, for instance, the Russian Revolution, you take a look at what happened in the U.S. with state versus state, north versus south, and it's very unique to the United States based on its structure, this massive union of different jurisdictions. But you take a look at the Spanish Civil War and you can see pockets erupting of different factions declaring different regions. So again, when uh, uh, when I say Civil War, it's, I, I don't know, you know, I, I've tried to, to, to veer away a little bit from saying Civil War simply because I think people don't understand it. They, they assume I'm saying that California is going to declare war on Texas or something, which I, I don't mean that. But you could see different factions popping up. Ultimately, you could see factions forming allegiances or alliances with each other. And, you know, ultimately, I think when people are already ready to kill each other, are already wishing for the death of each other on social media, I, I think we're, we're, we're going to go into a psychological conflict. That's, that's what uh, uh, fifth generational warfare is a reference to manipulating someone online through using fake accounts to convince them that a certain idea is popular. Uh, fourth generational warfare is more uh, is, is similar, but does involve physical conflict and things like that. Propaganda, black ops, false flags, etc. I'm looking at Twitter, man, and I'm seeing people celebrate death, wish for death, o overtly. These are verified blue check mark, high profile accounts, gloating and wishing for death, and that that's you know been escalating. So I'll, I'll put it this way: I'll put it in simple terms. In 2018, we saw. Proud Boys, Antifa, right-wing, left-wing groups clashing. And it was some of the most violent conflict I'd ever seen, you know, in the U.S. I'm not, I'm not that old. I'm 35. But I had been at Occupy Wall Street. I had seen, you know, anarchist Antifa and stuff like that. I saw people throwing M80s at old women. I, I saw improvised explosive devices. I wouldn't rate as too dangerous, but dangerous. Uh, mortar shells being thrown. This was 2018. And so I was, I was, that, that's when I started saying, if, if this continues to escalate, because we've already seen the culture war bubbling up since Gamergate in 2013, 
if this continues, we're at the level of kinetic uh, skirmishes, you know, physical violence, then I, I don't see why people will back down when they're being threatened this way and the police aren't intervening. They're going to get angrier. They're going to spread more media. They're going to challenge each other more so, and the violence will continue to escalate. So I, I've had a few people challenge me on the notion, saying that I was completely wrong to imply that there could ever be a civil war in the United States. And this is back, you know, 2018, 2019, 2020. First, I'll say that... Um, I first bring this up because there was an article, I believe it was in The Atlantic, where they said that they polled a dozen or so or a large number of national security experts who said that they felt the second civil war in the United States was probable, ranging from some estimates of 30%, some saying 90%. You know, I see an article like that, and then I, I, I take that uh, expert opinion, apply it to my own experiences, and come to an agreement. But then we see, uh, you know, we, we see a Princeton professor coming out, uh, giving a, an interview, which, which was published in The Hill, saying, we are in a cold civil war. There's a Russian oligarch who said the same thing, and this is years ago. So I, I remember, uh, as of recent, I had uh, last year during the election cycle, you know, talking about the prospects of, you know, what would happen if Trump did win re-election, what would happen if Biden won, and that I feel that a civil war is possible. Afterwards, you know, I'll give one example. We had a guest who, you know, he kind of ambushes me when we start the show, and he said, so last time I was here, you told me a civil war was coming. You said that people were going to get violent. You said things were going to break down. Well, what happened? And I simply responded on January 6th, a large group of Trump supporters broke their way into the Capitol building to shut down the electoral college vote. And their response was, oh, yeah, that is kind of crazy, isn't it? If, if I were to tell you that in 2018, based off seeing this violence, that uh, you know, 800 to 1,000 people would break their way into the U.S. Capitol, and, and, and shut down the process by which we, we formalize our president, I don't think people would have believed me. They would have just said, you're crazy. So now we're dealing with the, uh, many of these defendants from the Capitol riots are in solitary confinement. Their, uh, their, their supporters are saying this is political imprisonment. These people are being mistreated. We just had Owen Schroyer of, of InfoWars, one of Alex, he, I believe he works for Alex Jones. Um, he was just arrested. Apparently, they said that he was standing on the steps, which was trespassing. So now there's another high-profile arrest. Many people on the right view this as uh, the, the Democrats just trying to crush out any Trump supporters, overt acts of uh, political oppression against you know these against them and their idea uh, and their ideas. And I see that as where we've gone from the culture war being an online battle between you know left and right or, or, or critic wokeism or whatever you want to call it, populism, MAGA, whatever, it eventually bubbled over into physical violence in the streets, which we saw for an extended period over a few years. Uh, I think ultimately culminating in, uh, I think his name's Aaron Danielson getting shot twice in the chest as he was walking from, he was leaving a Trump rally. Uh, this guy with the, he had the Black Lives Matter tattoo on his neck, shot him twice, killed him. Uh, then, the, then you get, the, obviously Trump's government went and hunted that guy down and killed him. So the, 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 po the political violence is here. I know it's been worse in the past, but it kinda, I, I ask a lot of people, I ask you know, older people who come on the show, have you ever felt it this way with the, the hyperpolarization, the escalation of violence? They usually say no. And so where are we at now? Just this past weekend, a group of right-wing individuals, Trump supporters, were trying to put on what they called a summer of love. Anti-fascists show up and through smoke bombs and objects, then you get the right-wing groups that knew that would happen, showed up, showed up for the fight, then engage with them. And then you get roving street battles throughout Portland where the police say they refuse to intervene. And then two people end up in a shootout. People are ducking, hitting the ground, bullets are flying. 
And so I, I wondered how long it would take for us to get to the point where bullets started flying. We're at that point now. Luckily, nobody was shot. But I think people need to understand too. For one, maybe it all ends right now. Maybe that was the moment people saw the gun battle. You know, it was a shootout between two people in Portland and they'd say, this has gone too far. We got to stop. I personally don't believe that because we saw Charlottesville. And even after Charlottesville, which is several years now, it's still happening and people are still fighting. And I think people need to realize that when you read the history of either the Spanish Civil War, the Russian Revolution, or Weimar Germany, it's not like it happened overnight. When people read history, they're reading this, con- this, this condensed version where it'll say, you know, uh, the, the Boston Tea Party happened, the Boston Massacre happened, Americans uh, declared independence. But a lot of these people don't understand the American Revolution was 20 years long that these, these famous moments like the, the, the Tea Party and the massacre were years apart from each other. We read history, we think it happened like the next week. So, so what I see is now 2021, you know, gun battles in Portland, that's, that's insane. We've got uh, Joe Biden's approval rating among Democrats, of course, 85%, among Repu- uh, disapproval among Republicans, 95%, but among independent voters, it's starting to collapse as well. The, the amount of fervor we saw against Donald Trump, 81 million votes. And I, I genuinely believe, I don't, I don't think there, I, I don't believe the fraud stuff. I think, I think people anti-elected Trump, they said no to this man and they came out. So what happens in 2022 when Republicans take the House back in the U.S.? What happens in 2024 when you get a Trump or a DeSantis? The hyperpolarization, the tribalism is not de-escalating. I wish it was, but the, the, the fundamental values and moral frameworks of both parent factions are so divergent at this point. I don't think there's a bridge crossing over. A good example is, uh, actually, there's a story right now. A journalist was attacked by anti-fascists in, I believe it was in Portland. There's a video of it. You can actually watch the video of them calling her a slut, shoving her to the ground, spraying her with paint and, and, and macing her. And right now, if you go on Twitter, all of left Twitter says it was actually the Proud Boys. They are, they are so tribalist on 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 their worldview, they will not accept fault for their own side. And obviously, I think the right has its faults. I think the Proud Boys who show up to fight are causing, you know, equal trouble to a certain degree. And people have just, they have their sides. They, they want to fight. They're, they're not interested in what is true. They're interested in what they believe. And they're interested in confirmation bias. I think when independent voters start swinging away from Biden, which they are, and they might vote for Republicans, which I don't necessarily think solves any of the problems, you'll end up with a massive reaction on a scale much worse than we saw in 2020 with the riots because people are entrenched. You know, they don't want to back down from what they believe to be true or their worldview. And I think uh, just one final thought on this, a simple way to explain the difference. I do not think you will ever see uh, a large movement of Trump supporters embracing critical race applied principles, uh, critical race praxis. You will see that... uh, you know, the, the left will obviously be very much in favor of their vision of equity and equal outcomes and, um, you know, racial quotas. The right won't do that. And so long as you have two governments, uh, uh, you know, fighting over control of one centralized system where they want to implement their moral framework, I think it ultimately ends up with some kind of implosion. Well, Tim, I mean, you've said a lot. I mean, starting with the stuff you were saying about, like, the breakdown of cats eating sausages a really british thing for you to have to experience <laughs> sorry my cat's eating my bangers i apologize to him. <laughs> um like the the first thing you said about the breakdown of local media 
and how that leads to polarization and a kind of um sort of a obviously i suppose literally a kind of a dislocation a sense that you're not connected to place and i can see that like many the, the the sort of the way that the public conversation is conducted requires or sort of facilitates at least ongoing escalation and like you and it seems as well that there's less and less room for compromise for coming together and acceptance i feel like that when we live in the in an abstract and conceptual mind and in a sense culture is an abstraction it's at least it's an expression and when people are like voting on beliefs and fighting on beliefs it becomes a sort of a battle of ideals that may not actually even particularly relate to your lived experience in the same way as a localized culture might. You know, I keep feeling strongly that I agree, like I agree with you that I don't see how there is a solution under the models and systems that are currently in place. It seems that this is heightening, that there's, the pressure cooker is heating up and I don't see a point of compromise. And what I find sort of both comic and tragic about that is that we're trying to live within models for which we are not evolved. We're not evolved to deal with that amount of information, to be deluged with data about various perspectives from across the globe and how those perspectives conflict with our own and to have those notions of conflict continually stoked. And I feel that a great deal of the territory being fought for in this ongoing cultural war is kind of ultimately irrelevant and the function that it's performing if i if, if i could look at it from a utilitarian perspective what is it doing it means that many people's time is occupied by feeling that they're under threat from this other who in actual real practical terms could be made irrelevant if we lived within different systems of governance like that listen if you want guns have guns if you guys want to raise your children this way raise your children this way if you want to do that but like why are we continuing to pretend that a centralized hierarchical model needs to be the basis for this like because that for me becomes the sort of the battle line upon which much of this is fought there's a big challenge here. Um, I've long thought about this. Uh, there's a lot of libertarians who say, listen, this, this, you, the United States is set up in a way so that you can have your rights in your state. And if your state says, yay, guns, you're good to go. If a different state says no guns, then well, congratulations, you can live there if you'd like. The challenge is, first, I agree. I think that if we kind of let people, you know, live and let live. This is a very libertarian ideal to have, um, you know, if you want to live in a state that allows you to do certain things, by all means, if California wants to legalize, you know, marijuana and say Kentucky doesn't, well then go live in California if you like pot. The problem is civil rights. When I look to uh, the civil rights era and, and the fight that my family had to fight, um, my, my grandparents, their relationship was literally illegal under U.S. miscegenation laws. You couldn't even cohabitate. And when the Supreme Court said, you must respect the rights of people of, uh, of any race or, you know, creed or nationality or, or, or sex. And then it wasn't until three years after civil rights were won, we got the Supreme Court ruling for Loving v. Virginia, which allowed my, my grandparents to stop running away. So the, the challenge is, I think, I think it's correct 
that the United States ultimately Supreme Court said for the, for the entirety of the country, you cannot discriminate on the basis of interracial marriage and things like that. But that means a centralized authority rained down morality on everyone else. It was uh, during the civil rights area, a lot of the arguments were, you know, when they were arguing for segregation, they said it's a private business, they can do what they want. And there's a big challenge in saying, well, I don't want to infringe on someone's right to life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness if they want to run their business as they see fit. That's typically how the Libertarian Party expresses it. But I, I, don't, I don't agree with that. And that means there's, a, there's a, a serious moral conundrum in whether or not you are actually for a principled decision or your personal morals. And so as much as I can say, personally, I'm in favor of protecting the individual's rights, I then come to the very uh, obvious question. Well, then, do you think the government should mandate a business, allow uh, black people or interracial couples or gay couples to use their establishment? And to that, I say, well, yes, I do. I think I have a, a, a simple logical explanation for, for my view on this. You know, if you are in the commons utilizing public space facilitated by taxpayer dollars, you should not be able to, you know, disaccommodate somebody simply because you don't like the way they look. It's arbitrary. But you can ultimately say, get out of my store if they're screaming or something like that. But then people come back with the, see, you want the government to place your morality over other people. And I'm like, yeah, that's tough. If, if we were to decentralize to a great degree, would we end up with racism and, and bigotry and all that stuff and misogyny? And, and if we centralize too much, do we then just have the government shutting down individual individuality with some prescribed you know, supreme morality. And I gotta want, I don't want that either. So that's why I'm usually just like, man, um, <laughs> I don't know. It's tough, isn't it? In your example, you know, like sort of the um, racist and refusal to allow people of different races to, you know, sort of use various facilities. Of course, like me as an individual, I agree with you. It's just for, given that we're seeing the results of centralization, how it kind of plays out, my hope is this and is it a naive one is that the cases of extremism like i feel that do you know what i feel and i've only just realized this as i'm saying it that much of the conflict conducted in the online space is already somewhat ephemeral due to the nature of the medium within which it takes place now and a note, as as you have done over the course of this conversation, the disparity between the the online vitriol and the real life violence, even though to use your term, there is sort of you know kinetic conflict, or a term that I'll learn and be using from now on. By the way, I've enjoyed that. Um, but so my sense is is that a lot of that comes from the idea that people are defending something that is ineffable like the idea of no this is who i am this is how i want to live i keep returning to the idea that we are sort of you know primates evolved to living groups of a couple of hundred people and our our hardware can't cope with how we're being invited to live furthermore though i have this deep optimism about human beings and uh, like I, I i obviously i would love to get where your sort of almost your spiritual or moral perspective stands and by spiritual i don't obviously mean some sort of theological dogma i mean a sort of a general sense of values around compassion kindness or unity oneness so ironically um, my belief in decentralization and empowerment of the individual and empowerment direct empowerment of communities is underwritten by the idea that actually we are 
one in but uh, in sort of somewhat metaphysical consciousness oriented terms that i imagine you could take a guess at by looking at a few of my tattoos and my beard a kind of vedic notion of oneness and as being a sort of a temporary expression of this kind of oneness and regardless who cares you know if we live as if we are one it might lend us a certain amount of compassion in our dealings with one another my so to my point I feel that there'll be so few people that would actually go for the full-on racist, no uh, black people or white people or gay people or we're not selling you a cake because you're gay. Like that, These incidents would become so isolated that we could yield that. We could yield it. We could say, in general, you are free to govern your own community however you want. These are our universal principles that we would consider mandated under the what was formerly known as the United States. Equality between all people, no violence towards one another, da-da-da-da-da. Sort of a basic, you know, Ten Commandment-ish sort of rubric. But like within that, if there is a whole group of people say, we only want black people living here, we only want white people living here, uh, okay. <laughs> you know, like, I mean, tough. do you do you yield that in order to just break down this ongoing thing that ultimately facilitates ongoing centralized power, whether it's the state's power or corporate power, or more nefariously than either, the interwoven, interlocked, ongoing hydra that has dominated us for many a century now, and that is not going to be slain as long as we're bickering about you know comparatively small issues. Although I acknowledge their significance. The, 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 the fracturing of this, you know, if we were to totally decentralize to the degree where we said govern your own community as you see fit, I think ultimately you'll end up with more conflict, which is it's really hard to navigate. So uh, an example would be if uh, not even about race, you know, it could literally be, uh, hey, everybody here, we're big fans of, uh, uh, you know, the Cowboys. And then another community says we're big fans of the Packers. And so they say we only want Cowboys fans living here. Eventually, they come to view those who, out, who are outside of their community as others. And what, I, what I've typically experienced when it comes to protesters and police and basically anybody, gangs, they will not rat out their own. So during Occupy Wall Street, for instance, there was some assaults that occurred. Some women were sexually assaulted. And the official, uh, uh, I guess, decision from Occupy Wall Street's facilitators and, was that they would not report it to the police because they didn't want negative attention from outside forces. Whereas my attitude is, well, look, you, you got to report this person to the cops, take care, you know, otherwise they're going to do it, to, they're going to harm more people. And so my, my concern is, you know, you don't cross the, the what do they say, don't, you don't cross the blue, the blue line, the police, they don't snitch on each other. And then you have the, uh, uh, the activists saying snitches get stitches. There is an unwillingness among in communities to internally police themselves because they have a unified goal or uh, they don't want to cause harm to their uh, ability to affect change or accrue resources, accrue resources. So this is, this, is, this is the challenge I find myself in typically. You know, I, I sit down and I, I really try to think about all of what the solutions are or what the problems are. What will happen if we take this action? What do we get? Okay, well, what if we try this action? What do we get? And then ultimately, I'm like, man, I, I wish I could. I was arrogant enough I consider myself to be arrogant, you know, I guess, but I'm not arrogant enough to think I know how to fix all these problems. And it's really easy to point out problems in solutions. And so I guess it just, you know, typically comes out contrarian. If, if we're, if we're going to decentralize and then you get community A and community B separating each other, refusing to police themselves internally, and then eventually both, then community A says, hey, someone from your side robbed us. And they say, well, we're not going to do anything about it because that's our kid. And then people fight with each other. 
I recognise that. I, one of the challenges, of course, with trying to provide alternatives is you are sort of critiqued in the abstract, as they say sort of in sports. I follow sort of what we call football, what you call soccer, and like a sort of fan, famous managerial edict, like, you know, like the, the one of a football manager a few years ago of the national team said, the teams I pick have to play. You know, if you're a fan, your little your teams. You know, we should have played him at the back. This person should have been played further forward. They should have been wider. It's all hypothetical. None of it matters. My teams play, he said. And <clears throat> you know, obviously this is true in in the organisation of any system, or sort of, or uh, even fantasising, imagining how life might be lived differently. And of course, it's you know it's unlikely that we will be replacing this sort of fast-approaching Armageddon with a near-perfect utopia. But what I get a sense of is this is what I most strongly feel that there are certain ecological imperatives that must be observed, certain uh, uh, economic imperatives, are, uh, in particular with regard to inequality, that need uh, urgently to be addressed, and w we must have an understanding of what uh, our basic what we are mechanically even though i think many of those models are quite outdated regardless as robots or even you know apes is not a model i suppose it's a sort of a history but like looking at what are we evolved to do and as as long as we are living in systems that are taking it like like when i was speaking personally as a sort of you know from my position as a recovering addict i feel like i'm confronted with so much stimulation that my primal desires for procreation or for status or whatever it is are so continually provoked culturally in, in ways that are sort of you know of course um personal but also empirical like i feel like when i look at the life i lived it's a kind of a life of devotion to a set of ideals that are palpably downloaded by my culture become famous drugs sex all of these kind of cliches really um I feel like, yes, how how might these energies have been better directed? How would I have coped in a community that was connected to one another and to nature that had a set of shared ideals that were living in accordance to what you might call universal principles, although I recognise how strongly those ideas are contested. And um, just to sort of bring this um, to, uh, like to slightly hone in on some of the things you've been saying, Tim, when you were involved in Occupy, well, you know, I was, I was probably acting in a movie in New York when you were, probably down there and I was sort of like being a movie star and stuff and I was popping down and visiting that encampment you know and like fascinated I've been involved in counterculture and protest my whole life when I was a sort of a junkie when I was a kid I was at sort of left-wing protests and arrested several times for like sort of my frivolous and foolish involvement in such things and but I was fascinated by Occupy and I thought something important was happening I thought interesting rhetoric em emerged from it I thought it was interesting the way that it was this sort of uh, anarcho-syndicalist sort of ideas of you know, direct democracy, communication, assembly, all of these ideas were fascinating. And it's it's disheartening to hear about sort of, you know, the ordinary practices, or, you know, ordinary failings and crimes that human beings commit against each other, sexual assault, violence, the kind of things we expect from human beings. Um, <clears throat> I'm surprised that resolution was not able to be reached i'm surprised i'm not surprised really that of the unwillingness to communicate with systems of justice that are already being refuted although it's disappointing it's disappointing i just wonder what other insight you could give me from inside there and obviously you have something you want to say you know um there's a lot of people who want to defend the romanticized version of what occupy wall street was 
And boy, do they not like me because I'm effectively an apostate, though I never don't really consider myself to be aligned with someone based on uh, tribal value. It's like, are you, are, you, are you a good person? Are you right? Are you correct? Occupy Wall Street was a microcosm of the macrocosm. That's what people inside the camp called it. Because as much as, you know, your perception from the outside was of direct democracy, it was anything but. There, there were a group of people, they called themselves facilitators. And so they would choose who gets to speak in the, in the general assembly. And, and by, by nature of that, you can't have a true direct democracy if they would look at someone and say, you know, based on our, our system and our belief, you are not allowed to talk. Therefore, no proposals from you. But I'll give you one really good example. Uh, uh, someone who's a friend of mine. I mean, I'm friends with these people. I understand how humans are and how systems work. Someone donated a MacBook to Occupy Wall Street saying, I hope this will help you guys organize. I was talking to one of the facilitators and, you know, I don't have any like administrative involvement. Simply just being there and talking with people was the extent to which, you know, I was involved. I was filming and things like that. And I said, hey, here's an idea. Why don't you put the computer on one of the tables in Zuccotti and then allow people to sign up for 15 minutes of internet usage so they can talk to their families. That way everyone can utilize this, this new computer. And she said, but I need a computer. <laughs> and I, I, I said, well, I, I, yeah, but I mean, this computer was donated to the collective, not to you. And she said, yeah, but there's a lot of work I have to do. So I think I need it. And I just went, whatever, you know, I, I, I get it. You know, I see these people saying that they want to do right. And they, I don't, I, I genuinely, I, I don't really believe them that they're interested in some kind of new way of living, some kind of utopian world. Because as it's always been throughout history is people say, I'm the only one who can save the people. I'm the good guy. I must have the power. And of course, whenever they get it, they end up, you know, killing lots of people or imprisoning them or at the very least, oppressing certain traditions or rights, or, or it just doesn't end up working out the way they think it was. I, you know, I, I would always tell my friends, because you know, I used to work in uh, uh, fundraising for nonprofits, no matter what you do, you will hurt someone and help someone, because your actions are, 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 are neutral. You know, for instance, I said, when we go out here and we fundraise for, say, Greenpeace, because we're upset about the rainforests being torn down, there's some union worker at a factory who makes toilet paper who is being negatively impacted by our efforts to try and save trees. And of course, they would be mad at us and hate us, saying that we're bad for trying to destroy their business and not truly understanding. Now, I certainly think there is a right and wrong. I think some people are uh, um, factually correct and some people are factually incorrect. But it, you know, even if someone is incorrect, they'll still feel like you're a bad person infringing upon their rights and you're attacking them. It makes it really, really difficult to try and figure out a way to bring people together to actually solve these problems. You know, but just going back to Occupy Wall Street, I think ultimately what ends, ends up happening is there, there initially were some right-leaning individuals who were down there. They, got, they left because the structure of Occupy didn't fit their worldview and their way of living. Uh, notably, the people who could sleep in the park were not those who were more free market, you know, conservative or libertarian. They had jobs, so they had to leave. But the people who didn't have jobs tended to be more freegan, you know, dumpster diving. They said, I have no problem sleeping in a park, and I can because my food came from a dumpster. And I don't mean that disparaging. I mean, literally at Occupy Wall Street, they dumpster dived for food to give out to people. If you're okay with living that way, then you have an advantage in controlling a space like that. And thus, the, the, the politics that come out of Occupy Wall Street tended to be more of the critical race theory and socialist, you know, alignment. 
What do you mean about critical? Can you um, just, just explain what critical race theory means to me so I understand it better? Yes. Yeah, so uh, it's, it's, it's a very, very complicated uh, issue with two different views based on whether you find yourself you know, politically left or right. The left tends to define it as a legal framework for uh, investigating how race intersects with law. I tend to view it as a reactionary movement by what, I, what we call identitarians who oppose the civil rights movement. So on the right, Critical race theory typically is used as an all-encompassing term for cancel culture, wokeness, race-based policies, and things like that. And it's, it's fairly nebulous. There's a lot of people who can recognize there's something wrong with identitarianism, but I think it's not being laid out properly for most people. And I think critical race theory, when not used in, in the correct factual sense, confuses the average person. So uh, to, to, give, to give an example of my perspective on critical race theory is to, to quote Derek Bell, and uh, I'll first quote Derek Bell, then Kimberly Crenshaw. Derek Bell argued in favor of Plessy versus Ferguson, which is the historic ruling in the United States from the 1800s that said segregation was legal so long as people were treated equally. I obviously oppose that ruling. But Derek Bell, a prominent critical race theorist, is absolutely in favor of it, and he's been since the 90s, or probably sooner than that. The, the critical race theorists viewed civil rights in the United States as a trick, uh, the way it was described to me when I was covering the Ferguson riots and the Baltimore riots was that white liberals didn't like that black people had their own separate but equal communities with prominence like Black Wall Street. That's why you had the Klan. They were Democrats. That's why you had the bombing of Black Wall Street, the Tulsa massacre. And so ultimately they decided the way to crush blackness was to integrate them into a system where white people controlled politics and economics. This was a letter that was circulated during the Baltimore riots where they said segregation was a good thing. I, I disagree with that. Now, what we're seeing in terms of Occupy Wall Street and their application of critical race theory, which uh, I would, which is literally called critical race praxis, which is theory and practice. And then I derisively refer to it as critical race applied principles because it's the acronym CRAP. They started saying things at Occupy Wall Street like if you're perceivably white, straight or male, you are not allowed to speak. And thus you had members of the community who are dedicated and hardworking who were totally excised from, from any kind of uh, involvement. One guy I knew who was, uh, I think he was Spanish, but he had fair complexion, left crying because he had, he had, he had dedicated so much time and energy to, you know, to, to the park and to the, to the protests. And finally, when he, you know, he kept trying to speak at the general assemblies and then ultimately what they called the spokes councils, they would say, progressive stack, because you are a white male, you are not allowed to speak sorry, have a nice day. And then when you'd respond with, oh, actually, I'm Latino, they say, okay, well, you're passing for white, so our decision stands. You're not allowed to speak. They would create a list. They would say, who would like to make a proposal? Everyone would raise their hand and they would say, what we're going to do is we're going to allow you to speak based on your race, your gender, your identity, your sexuality, your religion. And so you'd literally have to stand up and say, hi, I'm a mixed race high school dropout from the south side of Chicago. I'm an atheist and I would like to put my name, my, I would like to speak. Oh, okay, yeah, we'll put you at number three because of your, your privilege. So that's, that's what happens when you take the, the ideas of critical race theory and, and, and into practice. You get this strange race-based identitarianism, which identitarianism is uh, uh, identity plus Aryanism, you know, a form of government and control. And so... That's what we're seeing now, and that's what I, I, I am 100% opposed to because I view it as reactionary. 
Uh, if you're familiar with what reactionary means, it's a reference to the French, Re- French Revolution when the, the monarchists, I suppose, the anti-revolutionaries reacted to the revolution and tried to stop it. Typically now they use the word reactionary to say that you're pro-status quo. I'm absolutely not in favor of the status quo. I'm in favor of universal health care, ending the wars, total government reform, um, discussions around term limits and things like that in the U.S. But when I look at Democratic uh, uh, politicians, uh, Joe Biden, for instance, impl- uh, removing Donald Trump's ban on critical race theory, what I see is an effort to return us, to rewind the clock back before we, 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 we said no to identitarianism. What people need to understand is that identity-based law has been the rule of the world since humans emerged from the dirt or whatever, you know, the caves. It has always been the first thing people would see is your race, for the most part, or your language. It was the identity you held. The English and the French, they hated each other. The Irish and the English, they hated each other. And then something magical happened in the United States when the founding documents and statements by uh, brilliant individuals like Frederick Douglass rang true to so many Americans that we must stand up for what we have written ourselves, that all men are created equal. And of course, men meaning humans, not even just males. And then in 1964, we ultimately decided the law cannot be based on your race. And that may be one of the first times in the world, or maybe that's a bit of an Amerocentric perspective, but one of the first times We've had a, a society say that your race is not relevant to uh, the law. Well, now what's happening is we had a good a good couple decades. Obviously, the critical race theorists, uh, Kim- Kimberly Crenshaw, uh, um, Derek Bell, are really good examples. And then their, their subsidiaries, people like Ibram Kendi, have started to say, no, we need to bring back uh, law based on race. Uh, Ibram Kendi is a really good example of the destruction and the hypocrisy, in my opinion, Uh, Kendi has a very famous quote where he wrote in his book, How to Be an Anti-Racist, that the only solution to past discrimination is present discrimination. And he said, he, he goes on to say that the only solution to present discrimination is future discrimination. This is why you see Harvard, for instance, setting different standards for people who are Asian or white or Hispanic or black. To me, that's evil. I I genuinely think so. Uh, The easiest way to explain it is At Harvard, uh, an Asian person uh, needs to score 1,300 on their SAT in order to get admittance. And they say it's because we have too many Asians. And my response is, the complexion, the hair color, what does that have to do with the individual? Uh, If you believe in those policies that the critical race theorists uh, or or the practitioners espouse, the anti-racists, then I want you to be the one to look into the eyes of the American-born or immigrant or whoever little Asian child and say, you are not allowed to go to an Ivy League school because you look too much like them. It's an insane concept. And so that's what they, they, they propose to bring back. Now, the, the interesting thing about Ibram Kendi, where I say hypocrisy is, his ideology is that any law that creates a disparity based on race is inherently racist, is systemically racist. I don't completely disagree. I think there's dangerous things you got you to navigate in, in, in a statement like that. But now you look at what's happening in New York City with the vaccine mandates. The least vaccinated population based on race is the black community. I think only in in like 30, 33% or so of the black community in New York is vaccinated. That means the overwhelming majority of the black community is barred from restaurants, gyms, theaters, libraries, museums, basically every public accommodation. Where's Ibram Kendi to come out and say that Bill de Blasio has introduced systemic racism overnight? Not to mention that in that mandate, you're not only required to have a vaccine passport, 
like your, your proof of vaccination or the Excelsior Pass, you also need a government-issued photo ID. Now, we've been told over and over again in the United States that requiring ID for voting is racist because minorities are typically unable uh, or in many circumstances are, more, are less likely to be able to get an ID. So if that's the case, where are these critical race practitioners to come out and condemn what's happening in New York City? They don't do it. Instead, they just want to espouse, they want to make money off books. They want to go do uh, corporate seminars. And when push comes to shove and there's actually something that could challenge their tribe, you know, their tribal faction, they, they completely ignore it. So, so for me, I'll tell you this, to, to end on this, you know, uh, idea of critical race theory, I'm, I'm second generation mixed race. My, my grandfather was white. He met my Korean grandmother during World War II, and they were forced to flee 12 different states in the U.S. due to what's called miscegenation laws. It was illegal for them to be in a relationship, and it was illegal for them to even live together. So my grandfather had to pretend that my grandmother was the maid and that my mother and her siblings were the, the children of the help. But eventually people in these states caught wind and realized that this was a loving family. Well, that's illegal, a, a, a prison worthy trespass. So my family had to flee. My mom grows up experiencing that. And she said that, you know, especially with um, the racism and with Vietnam and stuff, she's, she's, half, she's half Asian. So she experiences it. Now we get into my dad, who is also a white man, my mom, who's half Korean. I'm a quarter, I'm a quarter Korean, a little bit Japanese. And once again, you have my family, now uh, my dad and my mom now living in a world where it's substantially more acceptable still. When I was a kid growing up in Chicago, we had white supremacists vandalize our home. They didn't like the fact that even though my mom was mixed race, you know, uh, it's still a mixed race family with mixed race kids. And so we got brick through the window. We got uh, our, you know, the, our, our address placard ripped off, pamphlets about white supremacy and race mixing littered on our, on our property, people breaking into our garage. And it wasn't that bad. You know, I suppose it, it ultimately slowed down. My mom told me, you know, don't worry. Once they, once they realize you act white, they'll be okay with it. They'll, they'll realize, you know, we're not, uh, you know, foreigners or something like that, which is a crazy thing, you know, to grow up experiencing. When I was younger... Growing up in this neighborhood, we had, I had a Filipino friend, I had a Polish friend from Poland, I had a Hispanic friend, we had black friends because, you know, the area of Chicago we lived in was, was very diverse, metropolitan. And, you know, I remember thinking to myself when I was a teenager, like all that bad stuff, and it's not like it happened every day, it happened a handful of times. I was like, those people are going to lose because me and all my friends right here, we're all different races, we skateboard together. When we grow up, we're going to say no to the division, no to the race-based everything, and just be like, people are people, man. And then I went to Occupy Wall Street, and I got to experience the overt racism that is critical race applied principles, critical race praxis. And now I see this escalation. You know, Donald Trump tried banning critical race theory trainings, uh, not by name. I don't think he expl explicitly said critical race theory. He said trainings uh, uh, through government contractors that will uh, disparage someone based on race or things like that, which is a violation of the law, a violation of the 1964 Civil Rights Act. Joe Biden reverses that decision. And now we're seeing more and more of this implementation. We're seeing universities favoring or disfavoring people based on race. We had at the University of Dearborn, Michigan, they created a whites only digital cafe. We are seeing, I think it was in Seattle, they did a diversity training for whites only and another for non-white only. And now the most egregious and shocking thing I've seen in the Sacramento Unified School District, they have proposed what they call racial affinity groups, where they are advocating for white children to form white racial groups to discuss the history of white people and form a white racial collective. 
that to me, right away, I said, okay, these people are the clan. Okay, you, what, what are what are the things going to happen when you tell all the white people to band together based on their race? No, we wanted to end white supremacy. So we said, stop making laws based on race. And now it is the critical race practitioners who are bringing it all back. When I, when I was uh, younger and I was thinking about school, my parents told me, never admit to being Asian. Tell them you're Hispanic if you have to, because they will discriminate against you based on your race and they're allowed to do it. That's something you have to tell, you know, uh, for me, because I'm mixed and I could pretend to be something else. Why should my parents have to say that to me? And then I came to another realization. If I end up falling in love with someone who is Asian, does that mean that my kids will be disadvantaged because of this perceived white adjacentness or something like that? If I have kids with a white person, are they going to disparage the whiteness of my children? How do, how, do, how do you navigate this world where they want to judge you based on the color of your skin, your hair color, the shape of your nose? I think it's shockingly evil. And it terrifies me that, you know, pr- pr- uh, pretty much among the Democratic Party, it's ubiquitous. I don't like the Republicans. I don't agree with them. I'm not pro-life. I'm, I'm pro-choice. I, I am for universal health care. But I'm, I'm terrified because we already saw this with the vaccine rollout. Canada, the US, different regions were trying to implement vaccine distribution based on race. And I saw that and I said, how can I be in favor of a universal medical system if racists are going to seize control of that system and then say, based on how you look, you don't get medication. So it's tough. I don't, I, all I know is I can tell people to not judge people based on their race, but it's, it, it's, it's endemic. Um, the modern left in the United States is overwhelmingly pro-critical race praxis. They, they say it's just teaching racism, but my family's experienced what that means, and I'm seeing it manifest now in the real world, and it, and it genuinely scares me. They, 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 they try to accuse me of being you know far right or whatever simply for interviewing people who are white nationalists. But I interviewed a Soviet general. I've interviewed Muslim migrants and Afghani refugees. And I'll tell you this, there's nothing more um, alarming to talk to a critical race practitioner and then go talk to a white nationalist and realize they completely agree. I was talking to, I'm not even kidding. I was talking to a white nationalist only a few weeks ago, telling him how absurd his ideas were because they were based off just, just this collectivization of blame, which makes no sense. And he when, when, he, when it came to the subject of Black Lives Matter, he expressed how happy he was with it because what they were doing was forcing white people to segregate and create white communities. And that's what they wanted. And I said, yeah, I'm not surprised. If the root core of your ideology is that you think the law should be based on race and that your race should stick together, it's no surprise that they agree on most things. I, I shouldn't say everything, but most things. And I say most, it's because Black Lives Matter... Um, you know, activists have come out as, as saying they were Marxists, and obviously white nationalists are not Marxists. But uh, they, they, when it comes to the identity-based politics, they agree. Anyway, there's my rant. It's a good rant, Tim. I mean, I recognize that this is obviously personal for you and has a lot of um, emotion, personal emotion, and I don't... I wouldn't seek to undermine the value of what you're saying on that basis. And if anything, it... Um, increases the value in that it's obviously something that you have felt and experienced as someone that's not as involved in that conversation it feels to me that overtly what is being expressed is that some kind of redress needs to take place 
What I feel when I zoom back as best I can with my limitations is that it is impossible to redress historical or systemic problems by using the same kind of ideological algebra that created those problems. That if what we're saying is that we are aspiring to an equal, fair, loving and generous culture then that is what we should pursue and i feel that you know like when you've made sort of when you've cited some of those examples one of the things that keeps occurring to me is that i wholeheartedly believe that whilst there's no question there are there have been historical events that would mean that people from certain demographics would have had comparable historical experiences and therefore likely trauma and the economic evidence suggests conditions have been influenced on mass and the if the intention was to somehow address evident and obvious injustices practiced you know not least upon you know members of your own family if that could ever be addressed and addressed that is something that ought to happen i suppose what i believe is that the best way to address that is by creating inclusive and loving cultures now one of the areas where i suspect we may um, differ in our perspective on reality and I'm sure there's you know, a limitless number but one of the ones that comes to mind is that um, the thing that gives me hope is my when you were talking about the laptop example there in Occupy right I know myself I know I would have wanted to keep that laptop if I was in the position of that person but what I and I, I, I don't feel like you know I certainly am not yet one of those great souls that would go do you know what yes share the laptop for everybody where i reckon i am though is i really want to keep this laptop but i know that this is wrong and i will not keep the laptop i will yield we must vote for what is the best outcome for this laptop and for me this acknowledgement of fallibility this acknowledgement of our individual flaws the possibility for redemption in both its traditional and commonly understood meaning forgiveness and its more esoteric and religious meaning at least from a judeo-christian perspective you are redeemed. When you are redeemed, you belong back to the whole. You no longer belong to yourself. Redemption is something that I'm um, inspired by. And I feel there are great souls out there. And in fact, I'll go further that, that you know, like sort of you go through these, uh, these I- 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 incremental interstitial strata as you slice down trying to understand a man or a woman, a person. You know, like feel like, yes, on one level, I'm petty and jealous and insecure. On another level, I'm uh, gracious and kind. On another level, I'm driven by desire. And surely, ultimately, culture is the expression of this palette of emotions that we all feel to some degree, you know, or another in varying levels of intensity. And what I what I believe is that there is the potential in human beings to overcome the primal drives that lead to conflict and selfishness. I believe in this. I believe it's possible for me as an individual to overcome my own greed, my own lust, my own selfishness. And I believe that's not unique. I think that I've been been fortunate enough to be given systems to help me overcome those feelings. And I would add that I believe that my tendencies toward greed, selfishness and lust, because I too feel like an, uh, the, the, you know, this is my apostasy. My apostasy is like that I was embedded in celebrity and I believed in it. And I still, because of those values are not uh, uh, confectionery, they are rooted 
in primal needs for attention, power, status, etc., they're not nothing. It's not like some sort of ornamental culture that has no basis in what you might call the real, the viscerally real. You know, um, they have been overcome through a combination of circumstance, failures, experience, and learning. And now I find myself in this place through a lot of it is through my sort of program of recovery to be sort of plain and explicit to him that. I think it's possible to overcome selfishness and greed, and I I find myself believing that people are ultimately beautiful, and when they behave badly, this it, this malady is an expression of some kind of trauma or bad conditioning. Not that 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 that, that you know um, extricates people from culpability or you know justice and consequence or any of that stuff, but that there is at least somewhere to go. I'm not a nihilist, and I'm not a pessimist. Like I believe I have a set of values and I feel like that, you know, even like, you know, imagine if we were to get some of them critical race theory folk on here. It's like it's most vehement exponents and you know, practitioners that if you were able and I know how hard it is when dealing with dogma from anywhere if it, is the intention of this to create a more beautiful and loving world. Where is the love in you? Where is this love in you? you know, like, I feel that we'd be able to get there. But, you know, I'm a parent and I've been showing my limitations on an almost daily basis when it comes to practicing my ideals in the field. The path to hell is paved with good intentions. I think for the most part, people genuinely feel they're doing something good that is helpful. But there is uh, yin yang. You know, there's there's good, there's evil. Within good, there is evil. Within evil, there is good. And you'll end up with as much as someone can find redemption, someone can find corruption. So I don't, I don't view that as necessarily pessimistic. I think it's just, you know, the balance of the universe and that, you know, without night, there is no day as such. So we're constantly striving to do better. But I, I, I feel like based on my experience, at the very least, there's always going to be this great conflict between, you know, good and evil. And I mean that in terms of the subjective sense of what you view to, view to be good, what, what someone else views to be good. The critical race theorists obviously believe they're right. Uh, the overt tribalists who form a collective and adhere to the authority structure believe they're working towards a greater good. Nobody is the villain of their own story, right? But I can tell you, uh, I have met some people. Uh, I met someone during Occupy Wall Street. We discussed nihilism. We discussed oblivion and the heat death of the universe. And this was a brilliant individual who's very prominent activist today. And the ultimate conclusion we had in this, this wonderful philosophical discussion was well, then what really matters other than, you know, what we decide matters? My response was, well, I suppose then I'll choose to create a positive, uh, to the best of my abilities, something positive for people, or I'll try to strive towards something that creates comfort and love and uh, certainly not perfect. You know, I have my, uh, I'm no perfect person, um, but, but try to, to strive towards positivity at the very least, towards cre creative constructivism. And their response to me was, sure, but if nothing matters, so what? Don't you want to just watch it all burn? And they expressed to me that their goal was to shake things up, to create chaos so that life wasn't boring. Those people exist. You know, they're not, I, I don't know if it's evil, it's chaotic. But I do think that as much as you can find redemption for someone, someone else could ultimately become, I don't know, disaffected and just say, what's the point? I'll just take the money and then you get corruption. So I, I, I wonder if, based on everything we know about the universe so far, what we think we know with the, the, the laws of thermodynamics, the golden ratio, um, for every action there's an equal and opposite reaction, is it futile to believe that we could ever conquer bad? 
Or do we accept that there, we, we will just strive towards this eternal battle between two great dragons, the two great wolves, and uh, maybe that's just reality, I suppose. You know, there's ebbs and flows, there's waxing and waning, there's uh, authoritarian despotism that we will try to stop, but sometimes can break through when, when our guard is let down. I don't want to believe that we're inherently trapped in a world where, you know, fascists and authoritarians will keep coming to power somehow, but throughout history we can see dictators emerge and they kill people and then we stop them and then we get comfortable and then dictators emerge. So how do you convince people to pay attention when, to throw back to your point about what we've evolved to be, I don't think it's pessimistic to say, but I feel like it might not be possible. So to, to elaborate, we only live for so long. And that means that our influence on this world is limited not only by the time when we're born or the time when we die. By the time I was born, um, well, I was born in 1986. So who's President Reagan, right? And then 88 was, was H.W. Bush. But I'm too young to remember any of that. I enter into an understanding of politics around 2000 as a young teenager with Bush v. Gore, and I still didn't understand it. I then come to adulthood during Obama, uh, well, with a lot of Bush and protesting the war and stuff like that, and that shapes my perspective, and then Obama and Biden. I had a conversation with uh, a socialist, Vosh. We've had him on the show, uh, my show, a couple times. And when I was talking about Biden's corruption and the war in Iraq and Afghanistan, the protests against the Obama administration for the bailouts, he said, I was like 15. I have no idea what, what that was. He was too young. So the fact that we enter into the world already in motion means our understanding of history is going to be limited. And so I don't know if you're familiar with Strasshow generational theory. They call it uh, the, the four turnings, and they say that we're in the fourth turning. It's basically that uh, every 80 years is a great conflict that leaves a, a, strong, a strong lesson with society that leads to uh, um, prosperity. And then you go through the next generation where it starts to slow down, the next generation where it stagnates, and then finally the fourth turning is where it begins to collapse. I think that's because humans didn't evolve to live in a massive system like this and to retain knowledge of past lives. So, of course, we forget our history. So, of course, we're doomed to repeat it. I was born at a time when the, I, I, I mean, I was a child when the Cold War ended. I was four or five years old. I have no idea what was going on. And so I don't know the horrors of, of, of communism the same way that my friend's parents do or my parents did from watching TV. My friend's parents actually having been in the Soviet Union and uh, having to flee. So we're born into a world just not knowing our history. And when we try to learn it, we can't really grasp what it was like to experience those moments. We're entering now a world where the next voting class that's entering didn't experience 9-11. And so they don't understand a world before the Patriot Act, the lockdowns, the, the, the warrantless spying. And I feel like many of them are becoming inherently authoritarian because they don't know any world outside of authoritarianism. Mm. This is, um, I suppose, uh, Tim, a, a lot of the things, I think you're a very brilliant communicator and you're really able to condense and relay sort of really difficult ideas and wonderfully passionate in a, a, a way in a way that I can appreciate certainly what I feel like I thank you mate for coming on and what but what I I have to necessarily find like see I see these things as highly temporal and I, this is not like a sort of solely a mystical analysis it's a highly pragmatic one in the the movements of the spheres 
throw up, throw off civilizations in fleeting moments, surely, in the vast concerto of their limitless cosmic grace i.e we're just you know like we're we're down among the quarks everything happens at human scale to us we're born we die the, we ebb we flow cultures come and go but i feel that there is a potential through our consciousness for to for us to interact with the eternal to be expressions of the eternal the emergence of apparently universal principles such as kindness or compassion or love and you know, these are of course um, you know there are surely ways of describing them biochemically but there are also ways of understanding them spiritually and my sense is that as we reach this point of being able to attain view and log vast tracts of knowledge that it we it falls upon us to be able to practice in a single lifetime an awareness somehow of eternity to not make all of our systems an expression of our animal nature of an expression of our competition an expression of our fear and our desire recognizing that they're going to be in the mix as they are in an individual life and i know that it's naive to expect that any individual's redemption or any small community's experience could be scaled globally you know this is a like a fallible model to apply but for me I feel that we operate on a very narrow bandwidth in the way that we understand, analyze, incorporate and instantiate reality. This is what we do. This is how we've been. These are our progressions. And I feel that what spiritual practice, i.e. meditation, psychedelic experience, shamanism may offer is the potential to bring forth new ways of organizing society, which are not going to be sort of novel, like why don't we all sort of juggle or, you know, sort of live up a tree, although that wouldn't be novel for an arboreal ape. Uh, like, but what it might mean is that we invite new ways of setting up our values. Like when what I think of is like, you know, sort of a, basically a, a Chomsky idea, all of the assumed norms, i.e. this is the United States, this is the United Kingdom, GDP, is gonna, how are we going to run it? It's basically going to be a version of democracy that's manipulated so that the expressions of that democracy are highly limited and don't affect the interests of the most powerful strata of the society. You know, those are the things that I think could be challenged. I think could be challenged by populism. I didn't chat to Bannon. I watched Bannon address the Oxford Union. And as you might imagine, they were not a warm crowd. But he warmed him up with hot, hot <laughs> truth that day. And like he came in spattered from the rain. He looked like Columbo or something with his two shirts and Macintosh. And he said, you guys are never going to own a house. And he sort of unpacked how what went down in 2008 and stuff that you know a lot more about than me. And he said like... You know, populism is the future. All we're discussing now is whether it's right wing or left wing. And when he said that, I felt this is there's something very interesting in what this man has understood. And I feel that there is potential like that somewhere in Occupy, in Extinction Rebellion, even Black Lives Matter, in all of these attempts to challenge there is a germ of something potent, you know, like and, and, and like in the sort of like the Sarajevo moments of those gun battles you describe of, oh, wow, was that the bullet that triggered the movement that became the civil war? 
you know, I, I see a different narrative, a potential for a different narrative. Yeah, acknowledging there is this need for tribalization, acknowledging that there is a need for a, an agreement on universal principles, accepting that there's always going to be a degree of conflict, but to recognize that the things that likely need to change are probably housed alongside the, where power most commonly resides. Who does the system staying the same benefit most? Who benefits most if this does not change, if this change stays as this intransigent kind of gridlock of ideological conflab that's never going to lead anywhere because some people are never going to accept the sort of the mad mathematics of the, that semantic madness you've just described. Others are never going to accept people's rights to be connected to tradition and pageantry that means a lot to them because of deaths and wars and things that connect to them. You know, I feel there's something emerging. I think it is possible for human beings to live better. And I recognise that, that, that there will probably be a moment of great chaos before that comes around. And perhaps that's where we're headed. That's supposedly what's going to happen according to the Strasshow generational theory. Uh, we also have something called Thucydides' trap, which is a reference to whenever there's a rising economic power set to displace the dominant power, a war breaks out. And so that's, you know, China and the U.S. I will say, though, uh, I completely agree with you on the shaman stuff. I think I, I've never done psychedelics. Uh, I've smoked weed a couple times in my life. Not a fan. I don't drink. I don't really do any drugs of any sort other than probably caffeine. That's the only, you know, I think it's fair to say caffeine's a drug. But man, would this world be greatly benefited from DMT and psilocybin, uh, um, ayahuasca. People need to have like an inward journey and meditation and philosophical conversations and in my experience, there's a lot of people I knew to be what we would call uninitiated, uninterested, selfish. And then someone convinced them to try shrooms. And then all of a sudden they became more worldly. They became more compassionate. It's like it's like it gave them some kind of understanding they didn't have before. I've had a lot of those people come to me and say, Tim, how could you say this if you've never done shrooms yourself? And I'm like, oh, you know what? I just it's not for me, I guess. But I, I think there's something really profound in, in psychedelics that would be greatly beneficial to mankind. I absolutely do. What excites me about it is the, that there seem to be archetypal experiences. I, like you, I, I did, um, you know, psychedelic drugs when I was a kid, but this is getting on for 20 years ago, that stuff for me now, because, you know, my, my abstinence-based recovery. But what excites me is what you have described that it seems to function as a kind of initiation which um, alters the perspective of the individual and breaks down some of the structures of the individual and you can see how it might be a kind of a disorientation and how that might operate neurologically or biochemically but because of the archetypal information because of the consistency of the experience that suggests to me the possibility that as Will, William James said in um, you know varieties of religious experience that there are realms of consciousness that we are separated from just because of the where we operate how we vibrate our frequency see and um, if you get a taste of that what could be called epiphany or that whether it's induced hallucinogenically or through meditative practice and breath work both of which i use the possibility of recognizing not the sort of the dark version of um you know the great hole and the, the you know the, the solar event that ends it all anyway but 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 to see 
Well, actually, that in itself, so whatever it is that we are an expression of exists beyond that. The idea that consciousness may be a fundamental component of the, uni of the universe, not an inadvertent consequence of evolution, that we are expressions of that, that we have a relationship with that, that we can therefore prioritize that over our need for trinkets. I return all the time, Tim, to this sort of Gandhi quote, we've got to get over our love of trinkets, he said, and this was in the bloody 40s or whatever. We're obsessed with gadgetry. India is a country of 70,000 villages there's no point in throwing the brits out and then replicating the exact systems of governance that they imposed upon us just with indian people which obviously is exactly what they did do you know we should have seventy thousand autonomous villages that run themselves trading only when necessary democratically run within them you know like you know this kind of these are these are these ideas i feel like you know that's getting on for a hundred years ago a blink of an eye in a culture a blink of an eye for the evolution of a species these things in alignment with a revivification, a, libidna, a libidinization of the human spirit so that it doesn't become dormant and cerebral. You know, the people like you, I think, um, Tim, and I'm not suggesting that I've met very many at all, you, with a brilliant mind, a great capacity, a great intellect, it can, I sometimes think, can synthesize a very heightened state because I'm pretty clever too, you know. But like, what I have to do is I have to draw, even if I do say it, no one else is going to say it. So listen, it falls <laughs> uh, to I me. I think you're very smart. Thank you, Tim. Thank you. That's yeah. just made the conversation a lot more balanced. Um, like, like, <laughs> I have to fall into a kind of a different part of my being, a kind of an, a, an active innocence, become as children to cite the old good book. You know, that there is there is something in us. It's, we're not just thoughts and emotions. We're not just our culture. There's something in there. There's something in there that is, you know, the, the reason that it's often awakened through these plant-based experiences because you know, that is no accident because it is part of this. Solutions may be there, Tim. A soul, you know. Uh, it's interesting. I, I hear a lot of uh, similar ideas from many of my Christian or Catholic friends about mm, a greater something within us, something more than just uh, our, our, our thoughts and feelings. There's a lot of people, uh, you know, I've had some really interesting conversations when it comes to faith. We had a couple guests who were overt atheists, and then after having the conversation, they stopped saying they were atheists. I, I don't consider myself to be atheist or agnostic. I do believe in God, but I don't believe in kind of this theistic version that you, you gets depicted in media and fantasy of, you know, a, a human-like entity of some sort. I think that there absolutely is something greater than, than all of us. Maybe it's just the system itself, the universe itself, and we are, you know, existing as manifestations of, you know, small pieces of it or something like that. But I, I do think there's something more to everything. I think there's purpose. I think we can try and find it. And, you know, I suppose I, I, I would agree with you in terms of, you know, making things better, advancing, uh, new knowledge changes things. I don't want to make it seem like, you know, we're, we're doomed to an eternal struggle that never progresses. I, I think life gets better. I think um, people can, can accrue more information. And with that comes philosophical understanding, theological understanding, whether you're, you know, for or against any of these religions. But I, I, I'm fascinated by our developments with psychedelics, DMT, and things like that, because it finally feels like we may have discovered, with DMT especially, some kind of window to better understanding whatever it is that exists beyond the veil. I think, I think people experiencing that will, will come to have a greater sense of, of, the, of the one, I think is, is, is how you're referring to it, kind of like, you know, they view themselves as the center of the universe then when they have this experience that goes beyond their own individual perspective and, and, and really changes their way of thinking, they come to realize that, you know, we're probably all, we are all part of the exact same thing. And there's, there's something bigger to strive towards. 
I, I like what you said about the, uh, the the villages, you know, decentralized villages. I, I you know, there's, there's a lot of people on the right that they say it's the, the big culture battle is globalism versus uh, nationalism. I don't see it that way because I wouldn't put myself in the camp of the, the Davos elites and the World, the World Economic Forum, the, 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 the you know, International Monetary Fund or anything like that. But I, I do think a one world system would be amazing so long as it's not an authoritarian, you know, uh, crackdown, I guess. You know, the, my, my vision for a, a better world is regional autonomy. You know, your village, your town, your community can live the way they want. They can peacefully interact with other communities. There's free travel. There's no war. It might be a bit utopian, but I think, you know, as much as the utopias have always failed, so long as it comes from a place of liberty and respect for, you know, individual communities, we don't have to w worry for the most part about gulags and concentration camps or anything like that. We do have to we do have to worry about that from the despots who want to seize the power, though. And that's 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 one of the challenges I think we face in trying to strive towards that world of decentralization is watching out for those that would, uh, you know, try to usurp or steal power. I don't know, man. It's a uh, tough questions. It's going to take us more than a <laughs> lifetime, Tim. Like, you know, of, of course, know. the idea that you know, sovereignty is conventionally based on the idea that the state or the sovereign offers protection to the population in exchange for taxes and subservience. And like this sort of idea goes on, you know, if we were free to create our own communities, how do we protect them? I was in London today, you know, and I, I don't live in London, I live in the countryside. And like, um, there's a, they were gearing up for an extinction rebellion uh, protest there, which is flavoured in this country as a sort of somewhat middle class, ecologically oriented, definitely liberal left, but certainly doesn't is much more hippie and new age um, rather than the kind. Although I'm sure they would see a lot of alignment. I know there's a lot of conversation with them about how they should line up with the lockdown people, how the anti-lockdown people rather, and the sort of those kind of kind of movements that have emerged out of that. But whenever I see the police, I even in spite of my awareness of many of the narratives that are indisputable around uh, brutality and authoritarianism on some level when I see the police I think these are ordinary people from ordinary backgrounds you know when when we're condemning something for being institutionalized it's very important to remember the role of the institution in that and the, the way of uh, redeeming, changing, altering, improving, anything like that is, you know, is not to condemn individuals within it, you know, unless there are obvious legal reasons to do so. Um, like basically, what I'm saying is, when I saw the police, I felt kind of warm about those guys, which is not how I would have felt when I was sort of 20 and, you know, with a placard and with my bum out at a protest. You know. Yeah, I, I kind of, I, I might disagree a little bit, but I, I don't know. I mostly agree. Uh, when I when I look at issues of the police. I typically see regular people, many of whom are just doing a job, but there is an inherent problem with uh, in these institutions. The, the institutions are made up of those who hold it up. And so, I mean, I, last year I was very much saying, abolish the police? That's stupid. Why would we do that? Now I'm very much saying abolish the police. Uh, nothing personal against the good police officers who want to help. I think the issue is that it's beyond the police. It is a system of, I think in the U.S. we have a, an absolutely great legal system, but it's got a lot of problems, which result in oppression. And so as much as I think the, the mainstream has tried, the mainstream Democrats have tried to eschew the notion that they, or they, they tried to veer away from being labeled as abolish the police um, advocates, I've grown more towards in favor of it. I think that 
too much of personal responsibility has been uh, given away. The idea that we need a police department in big cities to make sure bad things don't happen, I'm not so convinced anymore. And it's probably because I've been talking to a lot of libertarians. You know, they're, they're, they're very much, they're, they don't like the cops. But, you know, where I live out in the middle of nowhere, I couldn't call the cops anyway. They wouldn't make it here. So it's, it's, it's incumbent upon me to be responsible to protect myself. Now, I will say this. Abolish the police is a loaded term that means something, you know, specific if you want to break down what it actually means. It's not so simple to just say get rid of all cops. It's basically like, I, I think we'd be, we'd be better off right now with a police force acting as arbitrators instead of uh, a, a, a violent, um, uh, uh, an institution with a monopoly on violence. The idea that, you know, police get to be armed and go around and take your guns away, then you can't defend yourself because they've decided that, I think is a problem. And so that's really what, you know, turned me around on this. I was talking with Michael Malice and he said, all cops are criminals because in the United States, he, 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 he means it to a great extent, but he said, one example is in New York City, if he tries to get a gun to defend himself, as is his right, that is, that is protected by the constitution, a police officer will arrest him. And he will not be able to defend himself in a city with a high, with, with an escalating crime rate. I started to think about that. And, you know, I, 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 I thought about traffic. There are people driving cars all day, every day. I know cars aren't designed to kill people. But when I cross the street, I'm not worried about someone blowing a stop sign or red light and hitting me, though it can happen. I typically think people don't want to hurt me. And so when I moved out to the country, I'm, I'm in the, I'm really, I, I live in West Virginia, work in Maryland. It's, you know, on the, on the, on the state line. I see people with guns all day, every day and some big ones. And they don't want to hurt me. And so I'm not really worried about what, you know, other people, because there's a tendency people, I think, I think to, to do good. Then I think about the systems that we see now with uh, the past year, with how police have responded to the lockdowns, how the police are responding in Australia. And I said, I think this is causing us more problems than we think it's solving. I talked to a friend of mine who lives in the suburbs uh, in Baltimore. And I said, you know, this is back when I was very much like abolish the police is a crazy idea. You know, police provide a service. And she said, where we live, all they do is give us tickets for BS reasons and claim we blew stop signs when we didn't and we don't have a high crime rate anyway. So why do we have a police department? And I said, okay, well, I guess if, you know, if you live in this community and you don't want it, that's up to you. But, you know, for these bigger cities, I think you need police departments. And then I started seeing what was happening with the lockdowns. The, the, the state demanded that people not be allowed to work. Meanwhile, uh, what, Walmart is allowed to stay open? I, no, no, no kidding. There was a gardening shop. I think it was in Michigan. They provided, you know, plants and potting soil shut down by the state. But Walmart's gardening section was allowed to remain open. That kind of, of disparity between the wealthy and the massive powerful and the working class was enforced by police who said, look, I'm just doing the right thing to help. I don't think they helped anybody. And then you look at uh, uh, during the riots, the riots weren't stopped by the police. You know, the, and oftentimes the police stood back and did nothing in New York City, in Portland. So then I started thinking, look, if I can't defend myself from a violent criminal in some of these states, you can in some places, not, not in others. If they're going to enforce unconstitutional, outright illegal actions of corrupt politicians, at this point, I think we would be, at a, be, be, be better off abolishing it to a great, you know, to, to, to the extent that we have maybe like, you know, we would still have investigators and district attorneys, but this, this beat cop stuff, I, I, I'm not convinced it's working right now. I'm, mm. I'm just genuinely not. Well, Tim, you're a surprising political enigma and uh, <laughs> a complex man. 
Tim, it's really lovely to talk to you. I could carry on for ages, but I, I hope we get to talk again. It's getting later over here. I've got to go for my dinner. It's basically the truth of it. And uh, I know it's probably early over there. And I know you do a lot. You create a lot of content. I'll make sure that I, you know, promote all your stuff. Not that you need it. And it's um, absolutely fantastic to speak with you. I've really, really enjoyed it, Tim. I really appreciate uh, you guys reaching out and having me on. And uh, if you ever find yourself in the states, you know, we're in uh, the Harpers Ferry area. Uh, feel free to hit us up. Yeah, I will do, mate. Thanks right for your time and thanks for your expertise. I've learned a lot of things. For a start, left libertarian, regional autonomy, some lovely phrases. Thanks, man. <laughs> kinetic conflict. Kinetic conflict. I forgot to write that one down. That was one of my favorites, <laughs> kinetic conflict. Thanks, yeah. Tim. It's lovely speaking with you, man. Right on, man. Appreciate it. That was me talking to Tim Paul. I hope you learned a lot from that. He's, so, he's very clever, isn't he? Yeah, he spoke at length. It's good, isn't it, when you're doing a podcast, I'm speaking. He seemed very nice. Yeah, I liked him a lot. Sometimes I want to just relax everyone, don't you? Get them relaxed. <laughs> Do you want me more relaxed? Not you, you're too <laughs> relaxed. You need to back your ideas up. But I mean, some other people get them more relaxed, you know? Like when they're very stern and cerebral. Other people are riled up, yeah. Like, don't worry, mate. I did recommend Ben Shapiro if you were going to say Ben Shapiro. Hold on. Don't try to <clears> pretend <throat> that you were going to recommend someone that you weren't. It's on the page. Who else were you going to recommend? That's it. One recommendation? But they only need one. Why? Because then they would listen to that one. Yeah, and if you give they... two, what if they go, hmm? Tyranny then... of choice. Yeah, and then they don't do it either. All right, fair enough. Okay, well, we've told you what to do. Sign up to the mailing list. Jenny's going to, we're going we're gonna to get Jenny married off. Ugh. It could be to a woman. Why do you keep bringing up the woman bit? I think you might be happier with a woman. Really? Maybe. I think there's probably a lot to be said for same-sex relationships. Certainly for me. You want to be a gay man? Sometimes I do yeah, when I'm doing you the jiu-jitsu. So, you want someone with a man's libido? Well, actually, I wouldn't want him yeah. bothering me with it. That's what they do, though, isn't it? They bother you with it. I've heard. Right. <laughs> 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 well, let's just leave things as they are, then. Leave things as they are. Hit Sit in your seat. Find your personal sovereignty. But find the Buddhahood within you. Become who you are. Become who you are, O oh Lord. All right, should we, are you going to play more jingles or anything? Or is that the end? Do you want your goodbye? You don't want your goodbye jingles. Hold on, let's just make sure I've done all my work. Get about, look, listen <clears> above <throat> the noise. Buy Revelation. Come and see me in Coventry. Listen to Ben Shapiro. Thank you for listening to Under the Skin. Right? Yeah. yeah. Thank you for listening to Under the Skin Goodbye. Thank you for listening. Under the skin with Russell